Exodus. Now for the fun stuff. So we are in this series, A Holy God and Holy People, and in this series, we're talking about a holy God and this, his people, the Israelites, he's raising up and he's helping them become a holy people that, were, that will represent him to the world. Um, we've been kind of focusing a lot the last couple of weeks on the holy people part of it and uh, what those people are like and the things that God tells them to do and the ways that God tells them to live and all of our favorite parts of the Bible, right? The rules, right? Here's how I want you to do everything. And he is really, really, really specific about it. So um, we're going to read uh, the beginning of chapter 32. We're not going to be able to read all of 32 this morning. I would recommend at some point this week, go back and read all of the chapter in one sitting. It will give you a very good idea of the details of what happens. We're going to read different portions of it and kind of jump around a little bit so we can get through it all. Um, chapter 32, we're going to read the first. I'll put the references up here, but not the, not the passages because they're long. Um, we're going to read the first nine verses. So, uh, so just to give you a little bit of background, Moses has been up on the mount. Mount Sinai, he's been up on the mountain, he's been receiving words from the Lord. And that's the stuff we've been talking about, all the stuff that God's told him about the priest and the tabernacle and how to worship and what to wear and all that stuff, how to give sacrifices. First one, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, I love that. They just said up, like he was just sitting down. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses... This man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, made it a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. We'll stop right there. This is an example of uh, kind of what happens when your parents are gone and you just go crazy, Right? Uh, because Moses is gone, and they haven't heard from God in a little bit, and the people just decide to basically go bananas and do things that they're going to regret later. I don't know if any of you guys have been in that situation where your parents are gone, and you decide to just go crazy, not thinking about the fact that uh, they might return one day. Um, I have a friend named Jason, and uh, he told me about when he was young, and he uh, used to live about an hour away from Palm Springs, California, which is this like desert place in Southern California. And he lived with his younger brother and his older brother. His younger brother's in elementary school. Jason was in middle school. His brother was in high school. And then his parents. And his parents went out of town for a weekend and left the brothers alone. Worst idea ever, turns out. Because Jason, the middle kid, is basically apparently the most evil person ever. And... <laughs> 
he, uh, he knew that his parents had like an emergency cash thing, you know, like with emergency money. And they kept it, of all places, in a stuffed animal teddy bear on their bed. And he knew it was there, and he knew there was probably a lot in it. But his parents distrusted his kids enough. No, here's what it was. His older brother locked the parents' bedroom door. His older brother knew, I'm just not even going to let these guys in there. He locks the parents' bedroom door so they can't even go in their parents' room and do anything in their parents' room. But he was evil enough that he knew that was going to happen. And he went in and unlocked their sliding glass door, the back sliding glass door. Parents just know that your kids do this stuff, by the way, that they really do think this much about doing bad things sometimes. And they really plan for things. And it's, and it's disappointing and you'll be disappointed, but anticipate it too and you'll, you won't regret it. So he goes in early, unlocks the sliding glass door, his brother locks the parents' door, sneaks around the back with his brother, gets the teddy bear, takes it in their room. $250 are in this teddy bear. They hop on what's called the Sun Bus, which is a bus that takes you to Palm Springs, to the mall, and they just have a day of crazy insanity. An elementary school and a middle school kid with $250 and absolutely not a brain between the two of them, and they just go crazy. And they come back, and the parents come home, and they just find it missing. And his brother doesn't know what to tell them. And the brother knows that it was not him, but he's the one that gets blamed for it because he's the one in charge. And that's basically where the story ends. Except for the fact that, like, Jason is now a police officer and he's highly decorated, and so he's hopefully, you know, a more honest person now. But his brother basically made him pay, I think we could, we could say. Uh, his older high school brother was like, I know what you did, and they'll never believe me, but I'll definitely make you pay. And he spent basically the rest of their lives making his brother pay for that $250 in a teddy bear. And when I talked to Jason about this story and he told me about it, I was like, the whole time, I'm like, but, but where's the catch? Like, how were you going to get away with this crime? What was the plan? He's like, there was no plan. There was no plan. I had no plan for what would happen when they came back. It was like, you only live once. Let's just do it, right? And they did it. How many times have you been in a situation where you just are like, I'm not even going to think about the consequences of this thing. I'm just going to do it, right? You read about this thing with the Israelites and what is happening here. And here's what exactly is happening. Moses has gone to the mountain and he has received from God instructions on how they ought to worship. Now we know that he's given those instructions to the people, even though it says he's been up there for a while. We know at some point he gave those instructions to the people because of what they end up doing. And so God has said to them in painstaking detail, here is the temple in every detail. Here is the priest and what they should wear. Here is the sacrifice and how it should look and how it all ought to be done to specific perfection, so that you can be cleansed and I can be honored and worshiped. He gives them a way of worshiping him. And the people instead decide to worship him their own way. Above all else, that is what we see happening in this chapter. The people deciding, we get it, you want it to be a certain way, God, but we'd prefer it to be another way. And this matters for us, because one of the things that we see in Exodus again and again is that Exodus isn't just telling us about what happened, it's telling us about what happens. It's not just telling us the things that people once did, it's telling us the things that we still do. And this is what scripture does. More than any other book that we read that's historical, it is telling us the way we are, 
and the tendencies we have and the things we're prone to do. And so just as in this story, God, as in painstaking detail, said, here's how I want you to worship me so that I will be glorified. They said, hey, how about we keep the heart of this thing and then we just kind of do it our own way, a way that we would find more enjoyable. They want to sing and dance. They want to have a festival and celebrate. They want to have an object that they can see, that they can touch. God wanted the people to gather together regularly. He wanted them to show reverence. He wanted them to use these priests to mediate. He didn't want this to be a matter of public opinion either. You notice that. God doesn't say, hey, get a group of people together, get a committee together, and decide how you should do this, right? He says, I'm going to tell you how I want it done, and then I just want you to do it that way. Now, there are parallels between what they end up making and the instructions God gives them. That's how we know that they know what God wants them, that, what, what, what they know that God, okay, anyway, you know what I'm saying. They know what God wants them to do. For example, the Ark of the Covenant has a seat, and that seat is that which we believe God's spirit rests, that sits upon that seat in the Ark, right? They build a calf, and a calf is probably more of a bull, and a bull is, is something strong that a strong person would sit upon. And the reason that they created that was the idea was that God was sitting upon this calf, that if we put the calf there, he's sitting upon it, and we can worship it, and we're worshiping him, and we're seeing him. They took his instructions for what to make, and they said, let's make our own version. Let's make it way cooler, and let's make it way more epic, and let's make it way more powerful, because a box with a seat that we can't even see that's inside of a tent, and we're just trusting that it's there, this is way better. This is way more like what we saw in Egypt when we were there, the stuff they did to worship their gods. God told his people to have an altar of sacrifice. They create an altar of sacrifice. They make an altar, right? And that's what they do. They make their own version of an altar for their own versions of the sacrifices. And they had a feast and they danced and they partied and they had fun because that's something that they wanted to incorporate into it. One of the most profound differences about this calf that the Israelites have created and what God has told them and who God has been to them is this. And this is really important. They have traded a God who they cannot see, but they could hear, who speaks to them a lot. He speaks to them from a cloud. He speaks to them in fire. He speaks to them through his word and through Moses. God says so much to them. And they willingly trade a God who speaks that they cannot see for a God that they can see who is absolutely silent. They want a God who will say nothing to them, who has nothing to say about how they should live and who they should be and what's right and what's wrong. And you look at that and you go, I mean, you really, you look at the story, you go like, why would anybody trade the God who rescued them, who talked to them out of a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke and all of these powerful things and, and destroyed their enemies? And why would they trade that God for a golden statue of something? Why would they want something that they could see where God was always veiling himself, but that said absolutely nothing? And I keep coming back to that again and again and again, and I go, how appealing is it, the idea of a God that you worship who doesn't have anything to say to you about your life and about the way you live and about who you are, about your very identity, about what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. And this is the very thing that the people did. They created a God and then they had a big party. And there wasn't a point when you had to stop and listen to the cow because the cow wasn't going to say anything because that's not how it works. Let's just have a party and we'll be happy and we'll celebrate the things that God has done 
and we won't focus on the things that God still has to say to us. There is a constant pull to redefine how we gather, how we worship, how we reflect on what God has done constantly. And we do this for a variety of reasons. Much of the time it comes from pragmatism. It comes from saying, let's give the people what they want. But please understand that when I say the people, I'm not saying the people. I'm saying the people. We go, let's give the people what they want, right? I mean, how do we want to worship God? How are we comfortable worshiping God? What are our favorite things about God that we can focus on? And what are the things that we don't want to have to worry about so much? There's constantly a pressure that we feel in any community of people to redefine what worship looks like and what gathering and sacrificing to God looks like for the sake of even our own community and our preferences that we have. There's also a constant pull to redefine worship to fit the very culture that we're developing within the church. We have our way of being as a group of people, our way of, of doing things, and, and we're often much more attached to the church ways of things than the biblical ways of things. This was something that the Israelites constantly dealt with. They came out of Egypt. They had always seen, they had seen a way of worshiping gods that was far inferior to what God has presented to them, but they don't really believe that. And so they want to do it that way. They want that to be the way that they worship and that to be the rules and that to be the thing that happens. You know, when you look in the New Testament and you look at the idea of gathering and worship and church and you look at the times that people are the most passionate about it, I can't think of a better example than Mark 11 where Jesus himself comes into the temple and just flips out. And when I say flips out, I mean with a truly righteous anger. He goes into the temple, to the courtyard of the temple, and he sees people, money changers. What they've done is they've developed, it's very helpful, it's very helpful, right? They've developed a system, a, sort of an entire commerce-based system in which people could come and they could spend money and buy sacrifices and buy birds and buy different things, and they would use them for their sacrifices and for their worship experience. And there were presumably other things that people could buy and things that people could spend money on there. And, uh, and this was a whole system that was worked up and to where you came and, you know, you, you engaged in that just as much. And, and yeah, sure, it made it harder if you didn't have any money to come and worship and come and be there, but, you know, no big deal. And Jesus came into this and he absolutely just lost it. He didn't lose control, but he was angry. And they say he made a whip out of horse hair. How cool is that, right? And he starts whipping people. I love that. I love the idea of just like the thought of Jesus, like just kind of whipping people, flipping over tables, making a big mess everywhere. And here's what he says. And this is so important. It says, and he was teaching them, right? I love that too. He like does all this and then he teaches them, right? And he was teaching them, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jesus is challenging what they have built here. And it makes them so upset that they seek a way to destroy him because they're afraid because people are believing him. Why are they believing him? Because of the quote that he uses here. It is not 
an original quote. It is from Isaiah. It is from the Old Testament. And here's where it is in the Old Testament in Isaiah. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. God's talking, the prophet's talking about all the people, through, through the prophet, God's talking about all the people that he's going to bring to the tabernacle and bring to the temple to worship him through, his, through the holy, his holy people. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. You see, he's saying here that there will be a tendency for God's people, the Israelites, when they make the tabernacle and the temple, for it to become a place that only represents a nation, a place that only represents an ethnic group of people. So don't let it be that. But know that there will be those who are other, there will be others, and they will be outcasts even, and I want them to come. I don't just want those who are gathered. I want those who are not yet already gathered. In fact, the verse before this says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Why would someone say that? Why would a foreigner come in and say, never mind, I'm not as good as these people. I'm not like these people. Because it's easy for them to make things happen in a way that just reflects their group. To where it excludes others. You see, there was this tendency from the very beginning for this not to be a house of prayer, but it to be something for all people and to be inclusive of anyone, but for it to be something else. And how does that happen? It's easy. It happens when a group of people get together. They form their own culture. They form their own way of doing things and talking and acting and being, and it's all the rules that aren't really spoken or said, but everyone knows about because you've been a part of it for a long time. And that's the thing that everyone cares about. And Jesus comes in and he walks in and he goes, he goes, this is nothing like what I should see. This is nothing like the way it is supposed to be. And he doesn't get rid of any of the holy stuff. He gets rid of all the people stuff. And he says, all this stuff is garbage. It's all in the way of what we're trying to do. And his encouragement to them is let this be a place where even the outcast, the unchurched, the person who doesn't identify, even the person who is not of your nationality, not of your tribe, not of your people, not of your country, that they feel that this can be their place as well. We are constantly tempted to redefine what it is to be the holy place of God where people worship. And we do it to fit us at the exclusion of others. And then usually we just get kind of annoyed, right, that they don't want to be a part of it. We go, well, I don't know, that's on them, right? That they don't want to do this. But Jesus was clearly very passionate about this thing. These people, the Israelites, have taken the way God told them to worship, and they've made their own version of it. And he, has got, he, and he will, we will see, get very upset with them about that and will punish them for it. And if you read this chapter by itself without knowing all the things that people typically ascribe to it, it's easy to read it and go, this really is just about worship, right? How you worship God, having an idol. I mean, they ascribe the idol to him, so it's not like it's some other God or whatever, right? Though we often think of idols as other things, right? Things in our life and stuff like that. We talk about them that way. There's a reason that we do that, and that's because uh, in the New Testament, in Corinthians, for example, as in other places in the Bible, it talks about this very thing. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, it kind of 
Uh, if you want to go there, you can. I'll read it if you don't want to turn there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, there's a description of, of this whole event that we've just been talking about, of God's people coming to the mountain and, uh, and, and, and building the calf and how it led them into sin and how it was such a bad thing and what God did to them as a result of it, right? And here's what it says starting in verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You see, this isn't just a passage about a chapter about a people that created another way of worshiping our God. This is a passage about a people who gave themselves over to a counterfeit God, which is the very thing that we are inclined to do again and again. This passage in 1 Corinthians, it talks very strongly about idolatry. It's one of those red lights flashing kind of passages. It says all the things that it needs to say in order to get us to hopefully pay attention to it. It says, stand up. Those of you who stand up, be aware that you're not quite so upright as you think you are, right? Lest you fall. That, that all the things that are common temptations to man, guess what? They're all common temptations to you too, right? Like you look around and you go, oh no, people deal with that. I can't believe people deal with that. Believe it or not, you probably are prone to deal with it as well. Many of the things that you see in others that you think that you're beyond, that are beyond you, right? And then it gives example after example of people giving in to idols and it destroying them, right? They did this, it destroyed them. They did this, God destroyed them. They did this, they were destroyed. What is the, what is the result of idolatry? Destruction, death. So what do we do? We flee. We run from it which sounds kind of unreasonable. I mean, if you're a reasonable person, half the time the idea of running anywhere sounds, sounds, sounds ridiculous, right? I never run. I don't run places. Like, you ever stop and think when was the last time I ran somewhere, right? If you're like, no, nah, there's no reason. It's fine. We all got time, right? Flee from it. Get away from it, right? Because of how much of a danger this thing is. It is about, this is about how sin distorts what we were meant to do and who we were created to be. God created us to be worshipers. He created us to worship him, to glorify him, to enjoy him. Why do we spread the gospel? Because there is no better thing for any other human being on earth than they worship him and they enjoy him and they bow down to him and, take, take and glorify him with the way that they live their life. We were created to worship something. To need something as an object of worship. To depend on God as an object of worship. And when the fall came and we began to live and struggle in the flesh, then what happened 
was when it wasn't God that we were worshiping, now there was all these other things that we want to make into little gods. We're little idol factories. We're little God, like counterfeit God making factories. People ask, why are there so many religions? Why are there so many things that people worship? Because we were created to worship things. And when we're not worshiping God, we will worship something. And it might be another God in the literal sense, but it usually most of the time is other things that we've turned into gods that we've worshiped as idols. Oftentimes when we see this hole within us, what we're told to do is to simply look in the mirror and say, you're good enough, right? Right, look, just look in the mirror and say, you are good enough, you're great enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. (laughs) You don't need anyone else, you don't need anything else to tell you who you are. You are you, and you are enough. Which is the exact opposite of what the Bible says. What the Bible says is, you're right, you're not enough. You need God. We are instead of to look in the mirror. Now, this is, this is really hard stuff because instead of looking in the mirror and saying, I will love myself for myself, which we can't really ultimately do, we are to look at Scripture, which is a different kind of mirror. And what Scripture tells us, what the Bible tells us, is it says, you aren't enough. God is enough. So when you feel that, when you know that you are not enough, when you know that you don't measure up and you're not adequate, good news, that's there to point you to the fact that God is what you need and who you need and always has been and always will be. And in the garden, we wandered away from that and we're desperate now to try to prove and establish ourselves and our identities independent of him because we want, to be, we want it to be for us or other things. But there is nothing better in life than recognizing exactly who we were created to be and how we were created to live. And there is nothing worse than living our lives and not being who we were even physically made to be, but being something else because of counterfeit gods. And I think that in the church, we talk about idols in a way that is almost completely ineffective. Like it it does almost, it almost accomplishes nothing when it comes to dealing with the idols in our lives. And I think it's mostly because it takes great courage to talk about idols. And I don't mean to preach about idols. This is actually pretty easy. Uh, It takes great courage to actually look inward at the idols that we might have. And most don't have that courage. And therefore, we can talk about idols but we can rarely ever see a change in the idols that we worship. And I would say I felt pressured in years of ministry uh, to, if nothing else, just accept idols and say, this is just who we are, this is the way it is, these are okay things, rather than to continue to try to push against them. There's idols like money, How attached are you to your stuff? I mean, really, like how attached are you to that stuff and to having money? Your job, how much of you is wrapped up in it? What you're doing, what you're trying to do. 
You might have the most successful career. You might, you might be a teacher and find great, uh, a lot of reward and self-reward in fulfillment in what you do and in the lives that you impact and change and the difference that you make. You might have a home business that gives you a great sense of accomplishment because of what you can see yourself achieving. But that thing can be your idol because it can be who you are and what your identity is rooted in and wrapped up in. It might be your lust for things, things that satisfy your urges and your desires, your lust for sex, your lust for what you eat, for what you drink. You say, I work hard, so I relax hard. I work hard, so I do what feels good. It's okay to give in to this. It's okay. I deserve it. And we become about that thing. Your politics, your, your viewpoints, your perspectives. It can even be things like your family and your marriage and your children themselves. Idolatry takes a good thing and it makes it into an ultimate thing and ultimately then destroys it. It leads to the destruction of that thing for us. It leads to the destruction of our ability to truly enjoy that thing for what it is that God gave us for in the first place. You know, in 1 Peter, it says to be sober-minded. And to be sober-minded means to be free from outside influences in how we think. And one of the biggest things that influence our thinking, that just make it hard to think clearly when we open the word and look at it, when we even start looking at it, is that we're already not sober because we're being influenced. We're being influenced by money and by our desires and by the values of the relationships and the families that we have in our lives and by, and by, by power and by achievement and by a desire for lustful, like a lustful desire for the things that we want. And then we look at God's word and we say, what does God want to speak to me today? Which is why 1 Peter says, that's why Peter says in 1 Peter, uh, be sober-minded. If your mind's not clear of these things, then you won't see. And we work on following rules. We work on cleaning up our behavior. We work on trying to be better people much of the time. But we have to understand, and I don't say this to make everybody feel guilty or to make it feel like God doesn't love us because he does. But you have to understand that just trying to follow more rules and trying to be better in terms of your behavior but ignoring the idols that are in your life is equivalent to moving back into your parents' house and be, with a major drug problem and being like, hey, I made my bed today. And I've decided to make dinner this week on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursday nights. And I've been doing some chores outside and, um, and I hope you appreciate it. Great. Stop doing drugs. Stop doing the thing that is destroying your life from the inside out. I appreciate the work, but that's not what I care about the most. I care the most about this thing that is at the center of your life and who you are. And it is polluting it. And so we can't just get that way by saying, oh, I'm just going to try to behave better and act better and do better things. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus go back to again and again and again? Is the heart, the heart, the heart of a person, because that's where it begins. Now, why don't we do this, right? I was saying that we're kind of ineffective about this. It takes courage. Why don't we see idols get tackled more in our lives? At least that's my claim that I don't think we do. And I think it's largely because we have the same idols, which ends up working out pretty well for the idols, but not very well for us. We tend to be drawn to people who value and like the same things that we do, right? 
And we surround ourselves with those people. We be in community with those people. Even in the church, we develop our own idols in those ways. All of the churches and the communities that I've been a part of share some of the same common idols. And this is what they are. The first one is relationships. The idol of relationships, specifically in family. How do you know that that is a common idol in the church today? Because how do you feel if you're not married? You feel incomplete. How do you feel if you can't or don't have kids? You totally feel incomplete. Why do you feel that way? Because we've made that into an idol for many. And you are, in a sense, incomplete without those things. We've taken a good thing, we've made it an ultimate thing, and in the end, it's hurt many of us. And so we know that that's true, that that's there. Do you know that in many cultures that don't believe in an afterlife, they emphasize greatly the idea of family and family memory after you're gone? The idea that, that, that once people stop remembering you, you're gone. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from the idea that that's the only way that you go on, right? It comes on from not believing in eternity and in hope, in eternal life, and in the future that God promises us that we talked about last week, that we get to live in light of. And that's actually practically pretty true. The more that we live for the relationships and only for the relationships we have, to the ends of the relationships that we have here on this earth and now, the less that we often focus on the fact that there is a much greater eternal relationship that defines who we are regardless of the success of these other relationships that we have. Another one is wealth and consumerism. This is common in every church and every community I've been a part of. Stuff is good. It's a blessing. And it is totally understandable that your life would be completely devoted to the accumulation and enjoyment of things. That is fine. Right? God bless America. That's what we get to do. That, that that is so common and prevalent that when we all share it together, that we'll never see it in each other. And it'll be hard to see it in ourselves. Probably the biggest one is personal freedom. We've been talking a lot in Exodus about autonomy and how we mistake freedom for autonomy, right? We want autonomy. I would say the idol is autonomy. I want to be in charge of myself in every way, just like the Israelites did. They were free. They were free to do what they ought to do. Liberty. They had liberty. But they wanted autonomy. They wanted to be the boss all the time. And we believe this lie that if we were actually the boss, that things would be better. And history has shown us that's not true. And it never will be. But I was once in a small group with, with, uh, that I had been in for years. And this was one of those small groups that's like a really great small group. You, you, you just go, this, this is like real community. We know each other, we love each other, we care about each other. We spent time in the Word each week. Um, it was a really great time. These were close friends. And one week we were talking about the log in the eye passage in, uh, the, in the Sermon on the Mount. And we were talking about the idea of accountability. And I asked the group, um, how many of you have ever been called out on something by someone else in this group? Now, I'm not talking about in the group, because I think we all would have known that if that happened, right? And that hadn't really happened. It wasn't that kind of group. It wasn't the group where, like, anytime you wanted, you could just be like, hey, you, knock it off. You're a terrible person. But I said, how many of you have ever been, like, called on something by someone here in this community that we have? And no one had. 
And the only example of it happening was one I gave of somebody calling me on something. Uh, one, one time after a group, uh, one of the guys in the group sent me a text message and was like, uh, hey, that joke that you made about that person, that wasn't a good joke to make, and I think that hurt their feelings, and I know that you meant well, but you should probably be more careful. And I felt horrible, and they were right. And if you know me, you're like, well, yeah, that probably does sound like something that someone would call it out on. So they were right. And I told the group that, and I said, hey, this happened. And they, they, thinking maybe then they'd go, oh, well, okay, if that's, if that's what we're talking about, then yeah, still nothing. And I realized that this group of people that had been sort of united by like a shared sense of sort of wanting to be teachable, humble, better Christians lacked this whole component that involved us being able to call each other out on things when we saw them. And why don't we do that? We had a variety of personalities. We had a variety of maturity levels in the group. Backgrounds, the way that people were wired. Why don't we do it? Because we all wanted more than anything for no one to do it to us. Because we all want the freedom to be able to decide and determine what applies to us and what matters to us and how we're going to live. Nothing makes us angrier than the idea that people would tell us what to do. And even though the Bible tells us, speak the truth in love, do it carefully, be constructive, help your brother and sister, I don't think we see a whole lot of speaking the truth in love. I think we see a lot of speaking the truth in anger, and I think we see a lot of empty flattery in love. A lot of tell people what they want to hear, things that make them feel good, how great of a friend they are, how nice they are because you love them. But we don't see a lot of that you don't probably maybe experience a lot of that, I really love this person, and I have to talk to them about this thing. <sighs> and I don't know how to do it right. I don't think we feel that as often as we ought to. Why? Because we worship the idol of autonomy. We want to be completely free to do what we want to do. Even though that totally contradicts what's in Scripture. These are just an example, I think, of some of the pervasive idols that many of us share together. And so, you know, it's simple. Just after this, tell people what their idols are. Feel free to point them out, right? Like, that's my, that's my application. We're just going to end it here. And we're going to be like, that's who we want to be as a church, right? We're going we're gonna... to, no, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Because now we get to the really good part the brutal punishment. But it really actually is the good part, and you'll see why. This is God's response in verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. What a stiff-necked person is, is it's like an animal that you put a, put a yoke on, and believe it or not, the yoke doesn't actually control the animal. It just tells them what you want them to do. Um, and so if you pull on the yoke, and they don't go because their, their neck is straight, and they don't want to submit... You pull again, they don't turn. You pull again, they don't turn. It's a stiff-necked animal. It's an animal that is showing you very clearly, I'm not really interested in going where you want me to go. And God says, my people are making it clear when given the opportunity, we're not actually going to do all this stuff, God. Hopefully you know that. And so he says this in verse 10, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord as God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power, with mighty hand? 
Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised. I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So we'll stop right there. So here's what happens. God sees that they're a stiff-necked people, and he decides, okay, let's have a fresh start. I'm going to wipe them out, and Moses, you and I are going to do this thing over again. Now, remember that as we've talked about in Exodus, this is a recreation of God's people. In Genesis, he creates people, and then they become so sinful that he destroys them with a flood. And here in Exodus, what we read about is God saying, I'm going to make another set of people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to birth them from one person. I'm going to put them in a situation where they're going to grow and number greatly. It's like a recreation all over again. And now what we see is the point, the inevitable point in which the people choose to sin. And so God says, all right, let's do it again. Let's start over again. And what Moses says to him matters so much that this is one of the most pivotal points of the entire Bible. Moses reminds God of who he's dealing with and what he said. Moses says, God, do you not remember who these people came from, right? You knew they were sinful. And God chooses something. He chooses to do something that is so important and matters so much to us. He chooses to be gracious. God says, then I will forgive them. I won't destroy them. Now, why does that matter so much? Because from this point forward, what this means is that the holy people will not just be a group of people who follow all the rules and do all the right things. The holy people will be a group of people who, when they blow it, are forgiven by God and are his people who he has shown his grace to. That the holy people will be shown God's grace. And this is a point at which everything kind of pivots and goes in another direction in Scripture. Because from this point on, to be God's people means you can experience the grace of God when you repent, which he gives his people an opportunity to do. A lot of people think God changes his mind, right? Moses is a really good debater, and he convinces God of something, that God made a mistake, that God needed to redo things, and that's not what happened here. What happened was God is making a conscious choice Will I continue to relate to these people and expect them to be holy in their obedience and destroy them and raise up a new group when they can't do it? Or will I change this, the way that this works? Will I show my grace to them? And will I forgive them out of my goodness and my graciousness? And this is what he chooses to do. The people make a graven image and they ascribe it to him. He says, I'll kill them because this is the cost of sin. The cost of sin is death. Moses asks him, did you save these people only to expect them to be perfect? What about their forefathers? You knew what these people were like, and God relented because this is who God is. This is who he is. We read this afterwards in uh, verses 30 to 32. 
The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, the people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. So Moses goes to atone for their sin because right now he's the only real priest, it seems. Aaron has just officially made like, by the way, you get to this point when this is why you got to read through this whole chapter. It is like, this is like exactly what happens when parents come home and they start asking what, what happened. And kids are like us, you know, Aaron's like, where were you? Like, where were you, Moses? I mean, do you really expect us to act like adults here? You know, and you say, you weren't here. And they were freaking out, and I was like, okay, let's just throw the gold in, you know? And then a cow came out. So, I mean, you know, which apart from not at all being what happened, right, is totally ridiculous. And Moses is like, okay, that's fine. We could stop right there. That's fine, right? Moses is like the only adult on the scene here. And so he says, I will then try to atone for what you have done. And what he says to God is he says, if you will not forgive these people, then would you blot me out? Moses is mediating. And from this point on, what it means to really be the mediator is to sacrifice yourself, to say, I'm willing to give of myself for the sake of these people. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like something else that's happened in scripture? This is exactly what Jesus did. This is truly a roadmap for the way God interacts with his people. As he says... I'm going to be gracious and I'm going to forgive you. And he uses a mediator who sacrifices himself and will, is willing to do so. And ultimately Moses will die before ever getting to the promised land and receiving life in the promised land. And the result of this is clear. When God makes a holy people and he does it this way, a group of people who are not holy because they follow all the rules perfectly and a group of people who are not holy because everyone admires them so much for who they are. But a group of people who are holy also because God forgives them and he's gracious. What this does is it produces gratefulness. If you're a parent or if you've been a kid, which I think everyone has, uh, you know that a parent can give two kids all the exact same things. And the response will be either entitlement or gratefulness. And it can be one of the most discouraging things of parenting. To give good things to kids and to watch them walk away entitled. It makes you question how you've parented and what you've done. Was I have a part, did I have a part in this? Am I, am I the reason that they do this thing? But many times and in many cases, it is the truest sense of a person becoming who they are, independent of who you are. And you as a parent saying, I will give them something good and I will see what they do with it. There are two ways that God's people can respond to his graciousness, to his deliverance, to his rescuing them, to him giving them new life. They could become an entitled group of people or they can become a grateful group of people. That's what we want. We want to be a group of people who are profoundly grateful. We think, how do people know that your light is shining and that people see Jesus in you? Is it going to be the way that you live and the rules that you follow and the things that you abstain from and that you don't do? And while there are parts of that that will matter, one of the biggest, clearest characteristics of a person who follows Jesus and is one of God's holy people is they will be grateful 
in all circumstances. Literally the hardest thing to do. Or it seems like, at least for me. To be grateful in all circumstances, regardless of how good or how difficult things are. I have heard more people tell me that they themselves came to Christ because of people that they saw this in. In a world with very little gratefulness, where we have all kinds of excuses in any situation to not be grateful and for everyone to go, I totally get it. That makes sense. Why should we be? Why should you be? Why should anybody be? To be grateful. Why? Because it doesn't matter. The circumstances aren't what we're grateful for. The outcome of things in our life aren't what we're grateful for. What we're grateful for is something far more foundational than that. It is the fact that God has rescued us, that we have life in Jesus, something that we don't deserve, and that he will continue to forgive us as we repent. If that characterizes us, then people will desire that thing, and we will be priests. We will be the mediators, the ones that bring it to them. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you so much for your word that you are so detailed and specific, that you tell us what, how to worship you and what that looks like, that you told your people how to worship you, and that even as Jesus came, he showed his disciples what it meant to gather together in community, what it meant to eat together and to pray together and to worship together, and the centrality of your word and all of that, God. But God, we have a tendency in our hearts to want things to be our way. To want things to be our way. And God, we are prone to want to follow these counterfeit gods. Lord, our prayer is that you would help us see those things in our lives. God, I can't think of anything more painful than rooting out idols. The very things that we have come to put our hope and our trust in in place of you. But God, if we don't, then we will be sorely disappointed down the road to realize that we were not really following you in the way that we thought we were. God, I pray that you would help us to be a group of people who can be support and encouragement for one another in that journey. And rather than point the finger and condemn and judge, that we be people who are loving and supportive and caring, Lord. And I pray that we would be a grateful people, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen. Father, your name is so powerful. And you are so great, and God, as we think about this, this idea of idols, your word is very clear that they are serious business, that they are dangerous, that they seek to devour us, that they are chasing us to where we must run from them, that we're not above them, that we're not better than thinking that we won't be tempted by them, Lord that they are a very real and present danger. And God, so we know that, that they matter. But for most of us, there is no harder prayer than to ask you to reveal the idols that, that might live in our heart, Lord. Uh, and we pray for courage to do that, God, to actually pray that prayer and to seek within, Lord to rather than just take comfort in being maybe very similar to everybody around us, um, feeling like things are fine and that we're past that stuff, um, having idols, Lord, that we would instead ask you to search our hearts, God, to show us what is there. And we pray that the people around us here would be a community that, that, that loves us and supports us in that, Lord. 
Father, we thank you so much for being a God who gives us another chance, a God who forgives and shows us grace instead of just recreating again and again and again, Lord. Father, we praise you for that, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.